There is a trend in American internet discourse around the notion of self-care. Young people increasingly believe that the road to self-care means cutting toxic people from your life. Rather than reflect on our own experience, the go-to wisdom of the day is to remove the external factors rather than deal with the realities of our internal experience. Place a blame on the individual outside source over the introspective work. The last three years, we have experienced and lived through a time of quick judgment, public dismissal of people's reputations, and a haphazard cutting out of individuals from life without true, careful exploration. Be honest, how many people here felt a tinge of joy when they read about someone falling from fame? A little spark of excitement when they heard the bad-mouthing and found out to be true. That enjoyment only lasted minutes, but it was intoxifying. And we describe people in these oversimplified terms, toxic, negative, all these one-word ways of reducing a person down to why you'll remove them. Between social media and the overall access to the internet and the ease of connections, we honestly live more of our lives in silos and disconnection. We as individuals get reduced to just one of these attributes based solely on the specific context of a specific interaction at times. And that reductionary view is really scary. Now, a lot of people assume that to truly practice self-care, you have to remove those toxic factors from our lives, that we need to adjust what we consume and and are exposed to rather than adjust our outlook and perspective. I understand it from what they're reading. The beauty of a tweet is its simplicity. You can hear a clear bang at the end of each sentence, but that just doesn't correspond to the messiness of life. What mistakes can we make and still ask for forgiveness? What do we owe one another? What do we owe ourselves? All questions that remain completely unanswered when we consume information in highly curated experiences. In regard to toxicity, it has truly gone wild. A quick internet search will give you 477 million results in 0.5 seconds. Here are some of the headlines. Seven types of toxic people and how to spot them. Fifteen factors that create a toxic workplace. Toxic people, semicolon. Twelve things they do and how to deal with them. This type of advice is not only uncontextualized, it's dismissively dangerous and it's anti-Jewish. You see, the advice comes from a me-first perspective that many of us see as a direct result of elevating self-care as a priority. Do not misunderstand me. This is not a diatribe against self-care. That's another sermon for another year. This, this is about the fact that our tradition does not view the world in a binary like self-care and toxic people. We view the world through community. I want to be clear. There are people in some of our lives that truly do need to be removed for emotional, mental, or physical well-being of ourselves. And my guess is that if one of you has someone in your life that you've had to make that decision, you spent a lot of time reflecting on that decision. And it was likely incredibly painful to go through with that decision. What I'm addressing tonight is not that. I'm talking about the people that we don't know nearly as well the people that we know far more casually, or the people we don't know at all. 
Community at its core is a process of trust. Yes, we must take care of ourselves, but we must be our best selves so that we can care for the rest of community. The core tenet of community is the notion that we create this web-like strength in all caring for one another. It's a system of reliance and stability. It's almost as if all of us lean in, and the core, the center, the strength is that we've all leaned in together. And this is why Torah is essentially forbidden to be studied alone. We are commanded to study in Hevruta to study with others. We must hear the perspectives of other people. It protects us from going into these internalized spirals and getting trapped in our own secluded perspective. There's a famous story about Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai who flees the Romans and hides in a cave with his son. For 12 years, the two of them hide in a cave doing nothing but studying the laws of Torah until they are truly the two most learned individuals of our sacred text. And after 12 years, they left the cave. They pass a field where they saw a Jewish farmer toiling the land, a literal mitzvah in the Torah. And they said, imagine people giving up the sacred study of Torah for worldly matters. And as they said this, the field burst into flames. And they hear the voice of God say, have you come out of your cave to destroy my world? Go back. Get out of here. The two had convinced themselves that their experience, their obsessive study of Torah was the only right way. Yet they had missed the intention of Torah. It is amazing to have studied Torah, but even something as elevated and holy as our sacred text can be dangerous when it's consumed in a complete vacuum. We all live in silos of our own creation. We come out of those silos and we look at the world the way Shimon bar Yochai looked at the world. We see how others operate, how they prioritize. We agree or disagree with their choices and we see all of their actions through a lens of scorched earth beyond the fact that this is wildly irresponsible. We inflate a false sense of justice within our own judgments. And in Bereshit Rabbah, there's a beautiful phrase, does not the judge of all the earth do justice? The phrase, if you want a world, you cannot have strict justice. And if you want strict justice, you cannot have a world. Choose one. And if you can't give up just a little, then this world can't exist. When we deal with toxic people, we often go straight to justice. I'm cutting those people out. I am blocking them. I'm not engaging with them anymore. But cutting people out because they don't agree with your lens of the world is lazy. Cutting them off for perceived toxicity is lazy. And we're commanded today to not dismiss without cause. When we remove someone from society, it quite literally tears the fabric of our community. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to feel that is necessary, we need to have done extreme due diligence. There is a concept called third place. Third place is where people hang out. It's where discourse once dwelled. And with a dying third place, our culture is all the harder. This phrase was coined by Ray Oldenburg, and he described them as an anchor of community. 
The bowling alley, the coffee shop, parks, barber shops, diners, the basis for the show Cheers all together. In fact, every 90s sitcom has a third place. You can see every one of them flashing in front of your eyes, the orange couch. Okay. Here, you would have heard views besides the ones that you could tailor to your own experience. You would have had spontaneous conversations. You would have begun the spark of a new relationship. The internet has led us to dismiss and disregard the need for third place. We go from work to home. We work from home. We connect on our phones. We read the information that makes us feel good to hear and not be exposed to the untailored discourse the uncurated talk, the important moments that were found in the third place. It's something we have lost. So instead, we crawl right up on our high horse, perched on our mantle of our own self-righteousness, and judge, and judge, and dismiss. We label as toxic. We write off a person from our experience. And when we heed that internet advice to cancel a person from your life without deep and extensive reflection— when we go about labeling a person as toxic without hard investigative analysis, we lose all future parts of relationship. Every potential moment, beautiful moment of growth, of transformation, of rediscovery, and we ignore the meaning behind the holiday we're all here to celebrate. The notion that we have no obligation to others that we can simply remove them if they don't sit well and they challenge our self-care silo is antithetical to this tradition. It's actually utter nonsense to believe that the only person we have an obligation to is ourself. We absolutely have an obligation to others. We just prayed, ashamnu bagadnu, words written in the plural, literally translated as we have sinned, because not only are we obligated to care about others, we're actually responsible for their actions in the first place. How can we possibly do that if we remove them for not dwelling in our comfort zones? What's the purpose of tshuva, of repentance, of a promise of growing and being better if we remove people for one or two actions, a part of one's personality? If we believe that canceling a toxic person from your life is the right response, where does that leave you for Yom Kippur? Is it possible to achieve tshuva if we have written off others for their missteps? Is it possible to achieve tshuva if others have written us off for our missteps? Here's the thing. When we say the words of vidui, no one is removed from the opportunity. According to our tradition, there is no action on this earth that an individual can take to be removed from the opportunity of vidui, of acknowledging transgressions, of being released, of forgiven from their sins. Not a single thing removes that right from an individual. We have to give the deepest and realest work. We have to really try and mend broken fences and give people the opportunity to detoxify their way instead of getting them stuck in the moment that they made. The amount of misunderstanding, the lack of background into why a person is acting the way they are, not knowing the full story will lead us to a very sad reality. 
Everyone will want somebody else removed for being offended by something they did. You will be removed by someone for something you did. Because someone out there is offended by something you did accidentally or on purpose. And that would leave us with absolutely no community left. And that is truly scary. Again, there are true toxic people and relationships worthy of saying goodbye to. But overall, the trend and the popularity of identifying toxic people points far more to haphazard labelings than actually finding toxic people. When we judge others, even though we know that we grow and change, even though we have kol nidre, even though we amend on Yom Kippur altogether, we judge others as if we've never grown or changed. We look at a tweet from 10 years ago and hold a person accountable when from all measurement, that version of the person doesn't exist anymore. They've had 10 years of growth and change. Kol Nidre allows us to not be beholden to any vows we make, to not have to answer to even the promises of our past. And for this reason, Kol Nidre speaks profoundly to this moment in time. In the age of the internet, every impetus posting, every misguided tweet, every regretted utterance, it survives forever. And often no amount of regret is sufficient to undo the stain on a person's reputation. Let Kol Nidre remind us to cancel the missteps rather than the people, accepting genuine regret and embracing the possibility of change and growth. The lessons of Kol Nidre are in some ways more relevant now than they were thousands of years ago when first brought into our liturgy. You know what absolutely blows me right right now is that there are communities hearing sermons across the country about how it's okay to protect yourself above all and giving people permission to cut out the voices that don't make them feel whole, that make them feel uncomfortable. But that takeaway that takeaway also removes support and protections from the rest of our society, and that is ultimately a far more dangerous thing for each one of us as individuals. And I know that many of you may be sitting here feeling the opposite of everything I have just said. That it is a form of self-preservation to remove people for their ideologies and opinions when they don't sit well with us. And I want to challenge you to try something different as we go through our transformative experience of Yom Kippur this year. So how do we do this? We find the third spaces again. We step back from the over-curated silo and experience new people. We engage with people that are not like us, and we rebuild our ability and patience to listen to others who are unlike us. We need to be very careful to not paint a whole group of people with the same brush. This is hard. This is very, very hard because we've gotten a long, long way in engaging this way. It's an emotionally difficult task for many of us to reframe and reset how we have come to interact with the world and the fear of how vulnerable it might leave us. That is why we're here together. That is why we spent these days of awe apologizing, but now we join together for this final day of tshuva. 
Transgressions come in all ranges, all sizes, all intensities, and yet our tradition says that repentance is not hierarchical. God forgives on an even slate, and it is truly only a higher power's prerogative to eternally judge a person. It is not our job to cancel someone beyond return. We have to hold people accountable, and you cannot do that when you cut them off altogether. If we cut them off, we're simply sealing their fate and removing the chance of reformation, and that kind of judgment belongs to the divine alone. That is the very judgment we seek as a community in these next 25 hours, and we have to have enough faith in our tradition to allow that process to happen the way it should. Gamar Hatimatova, may you be written in the book.